There we go. Um, okay, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, uh, in the chairs somewhere around you, or the words will be on the screen. So just want to say happy sixth day of Christmas to all of you guys. So, uh, so I don't know if you know this, but uh, Jesus, he doesn't just have a birthday. He has a birthday week, right? That's kind of like what we do in our house. Um, so, uh, so Christmas is not one day. We're actually in a season called Christmas Tide right now. And so a lot of you have already put up your Christmas decorations, and I just want to say boo on you, because Christmas is still going on, right? It is still going on. Yes, it's so, so Christmas actually lasts for 12 days, right? The 12 days of Christmas. You guys know that song? I know all the stores try to get you to buy everything 12 days before Christmas, but really 12 days of Christmas is how long the Christmas season lasts where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And this season is capped off with something that we call, uh, historically has been called Epiphany. And Epiphany is a day to think through um, the revelation of Jesus, of who he is, and specifically looking at the story of the visit of the Magi to the child Jesus. So we're going to kind of look at that today. Look at that this morning. And this is, the story of the Magi is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible, right? We have Christmas carols about them. They've made it into our nativity sets at home. And I w- I'm willing to bet most of you guys know the three gifts that they brought, right? What three gifts did the Magi bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right, uh, you guys got it. And, and I'm proud of you for pretending that you knew what frankincense and myrrh actually were. Good job on that. Um, so, so here's the deal. This is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible, but a lot of what we know about the story is actually wrong. <laughs> and a lot of what we know is actually mistaken and actually taken from different traditions that we've received throughout history. And so we three kings of Orient are actually not Oriental, we're not kings, and we're not three, right? So, so who are these guys? What is the point of this story? So we're going to try to go through a little bit at a time, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, who are these wise guys? right? Uh, so our translation calls them wise men, which is really not helpful, and it's actually not a great translation. Uh, so the Greek here is magi, which you've probably heard that word before, magi, and that's actually where we get our word magic from. And so magi, who these were, were these weren't just wise men out there, But this was a specific class of people in the ancient world. And so more specifically, the Magi were pagan priests from Persia, from the Persian area. And they most likely specialized in astrology and the dark arts. And so in the Old Testament, uh, this term magi is kind of loosely referred to those, those people that Pharaoh and the kings of, e- uh, kings of Babylon would actually, the magicians that they would call and gather to interpret their dreams or to perform miracles for them. 
So despite the song, uh, Matri actually weren't kings, but they had high standing in the king's court. So these were men who counseled the kings about gods and stars and the supernatural. So if the king had this weird, crazy dream, he's going to ask the magi to come and help explain it to him. If there was some supernatural, mystical thing that happened, the king would call the magi to kind of communicate the will of the gods to them. So even though they weren't kings, the magi actually carried a lot of power and influence and authority in the ancient world. So now here's the deal. If you want to still call them wise men, that's okay. And you can even use the witty phrase, wise men still seek him, right? You can still say that as long as you also say, pagan priests from Persia still seek him. Um, as long as you do that, we're all good. So, um, so why in the world are these pagans, these foreign priests, these spiritualists coming to Jerusalem? Why are they coming? So we, re- we read here in Matthew, it's so strange. They see a star and they somehow conclude that the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews, had been born. Now, again, it's not strange that they see a star because these are astrologers. They're always looking and studying the stars for different signs or different things that the gods are communicating. And they potentially had some access to, uh, to prophecies from an early Magi-like figure called Balaam. So Balaam's actually in the Old Testament, and he is this pagan prophet for hire. Um, and he actually is hired by, uh, by God's enemies to curse the people of Israel. And instead, it's a strange story. He actually ends up blessing them. But the point is this, is though he wasn't a follower of the God of the Bible, though he worshiped foreign gods, God actually spoke through him and prophesied through him. And here's one of the things that he prophesied. Listen to this. This is out of Numbers 24. He says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Right? So Balaam, he makes this prophecy. And again, Balaam's descendants probably have connections to the Magi, but he gives these prophecies of this star, this king who is going to be born to Israel. And what does he do? He's destroying everyone, right? He's just ruling over everyone. All the other nations are falling before this king. And so the Magi, they see this star, and one way or another, they reason from this, that the king of the Jews has been born. And so a group of these magi, which again, the song mentions three, and they probably were more than three. The Bible actually doesn't tell us how many there were, but probably more, you're looking more like 12, 14, somewhere along there. Um, but, uh, but they actually, a group of them journey from the east to Jerusalem, and it says that they came to worship him. And what this really is implying is actually paying homage to a king. And so in other words, here's what's happening. They hear about 
this king being born. They, they've heard about this king that was going to come, and he's going to rule over everything. And they find out he's been born through these stars, and they say, we need to go and treat favor of this king while we still can. We need to go as emissaries, and we need to go give him gifts, and we need to make sure he likes us, so that way we're not destroyed. So that way we're not beat down like everyone else. We want his favor. And so just imagine with me the scene that's going on here. So these magi, they waltz into the streets of Jerusalem. They're dressed in this foreign clothing, this flashy clothing. They're speaking in a thick accent. I mean, they're turning everyone's heads. They're like, who are these people, right? Jerusalem hasn't seen people like this. They're coming through, they're rolling up with their carts probably of supplies and treasures. They're sticking out like a sore thumb in Jerusalem. And even more strange, these magi, they just start going around and asking people and going, hey, where do we find the new king? We, we want to honor him. And the people are just like, what? What are you talking? They're so confused. They haven't heard about a new king being born. And here are these strange people coming in, these pagans who aren't even from Israel, and they're talking about a new king being born. And everyone is just so confused. And it draws so much attention that rumors actually reach the reigning king of Judea, who's Herod. Now, at this point, let's just stop. Because before we go on, we need to ask a question. Why? Why in the world does Matthew record this story for us? This is a weird story. This is a strange story. And no other gospel mentions this. Mark, Luke, John, none of them mention this story, right? And Matthew decides to include this as the first story after he talks about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't mention a census. He doesn't talk about shepherds. There's no reference to an inn. There's nothing about him going to the temple or him being an older boy. Instead, Matthew focuses squarely in on this strange story of a strange people visiting the child Jesus. Now in this story, there's something amazing that I think we, we oftentimes miss, is that through the Magi, through them coming, the birth of Jesus is actually announced to the high and mighty. So you see, Luke is the only other gospel writer who talks about the birth of Jesus. And the things Luke tends to emphasize is he talks about Jesus's obscurity, right? So he's born to a poor family. He was born in this barn. Um, he, you know, revealed himself to a group of humble shepherds. Um, he, maybe one or two other average lowly people find out about the birth of Jesus. And that's what is stressed in the Gospel of Luke. But in the Gospel of Matthew, what we see is actually the birth of Jesus is widespread and it's revealed not just to the lowly, but to those in power, to kings, to religious leaders, to foreign emissaries. The birth of Jesus is made known to the high and mighty, and it's revealed widespread that the Messiah had come. Now, here's the deal. I, so I come from a family that just historically, let's just say we're not touchy, right? We like our, we just understand the concept of space, right? People have their space. And so growing up, you know, it's like Christmas, and you're like, 
see you later, Mom, and then you just leave. Uh, and that's just kind of how it was growing up. Um, we weren't a touchy, huggy type of people. Uh, but you grow up, right, and you realize not everyone uh, has a concept of space, right? Some people just come and they just, uh, who are unnamed, will just come and give you hugs all the time. Um, and you're like, I didn't ask for this. I don't know what to do right now. I'm just going to stand here. This is great. You're in my space. Uh, please, please move on. Um, and it's always funny whenever you have two people who are kind of, they understand space, but they're in a place where they're expected to hug one another or do whatever because it's always the awkward like, hi, okay, side hug. All right, move on. Um, but here's the deal, um, which, by the way, I'm recovering in that, okay, so you can give me hugs or high fives, it's okay. Uh, but here's the deal, is that, is that whenever someone's in your space, you just have to deal with it, right? You have to deal with it. Uh, you can't just ignore it. So as someone who, didn't, who has a concept of space, it's like, and other people get in that space, you have to deal with that reality. They're in your space, you have to deal with it. So the thing is this, here, here's the reason I say that, is Jesus, he has invaded our space. He's invaded our space. He, is, he has come into an uncomfortable place near us, and we have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. We have to figure out how to deal with this Jesus who has invaded our space. And for every single one of the people that we're going to meet in this story, they have to deal with the reality that Jesus has been born. He's invaded their space. He has come in to their place. And every single one of them have to answer a question that Matthew's going to hit later on. And, and, uh, and it's going to be really kind of a highlight of his whole gospel. But Matthew hits it later on, and it's a question every single person has to face. And that's this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Every single person in the story, because Jesus has invaded their space, because Jesus is now here, they have to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? So we're going to look at a couple of the people in the story and see who did they see Jesus was? How did they respond to this reality of Jesus now here? Now here. So the first person that we kind of see respond to the news of Jesus is King Herod. So let's pick it up again. We're going to start in verse 1 again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. <laughs> so he here's the deal. So the thing you got to realize about Herod is, is he's not a king like King David or King Josiah was in the Old Testament. Herod was, his title was king of the Jews, but he wasn't really even a Jew. About 40 years before Jesus' birth, Herod actually seizes the territory of Judea. He has the reigning ruler executed. There was this dynasty of Jews that had been reigning for about 100 years. He slaughters them. Um, he kills them. He takes the throne. He comes to power, and he rules underneath the authority of Rome. 
And to maintain his power and authority, he's just known as this bloodthirsty tyrant almost. He just clings onto his power. And it wasn't uncommon for him to execute anyone he thought threatened his throne. So he killed people of his own family. I mean, he killed two brother-in-laws, a mother-in-law. He killed a wife, and he killed three of his sons. All because they threatened his power, his authority, and his throne. So here's the deal. Herod, he sees the king of kings as a threat. He sees the king of kings as a threat. He hears mention that some foreigners thought are in Jerusalem and they're thinking and asking about this new king that was been born and it says he was troubled right that's a bit of an understatement right what he means is aka he freaked he freaked out why because Jesus was a threat the birth of Jesus threatened Herod's power and authority and he was willing to do whatever it took to remain in control. And so we find out, really, he makes it his goal immediately to kill him, to kill Jesus. Because Herod realized something that a lot of times we can forget. Herod knew a truth that we sometimes don't understand, and that's this. There can only be one true king. There can only be one true king. See, the thing that Matthew wants us to see is not just that Jesus threatened the earthly political kingdom of Herod, but Jesus threatens every kingdom. He threatens every kingdom. As soon as Jesus was born, as soon as he invaded our space, his existence put every other authority into subjection. And not just governments and not just politics, but our very lives. Because you see, at the center of every single human heart is a throne. Is a throne. And this throne is bent with the same self-centeredness and self-protection that we see in Herod. Here's the deal. We all want to reign over our little kingdoms. We all want to sit on the throne of our hearts to exact our will of absolute power. I mean, this is like what the famous poem says, right? It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If you get to the root of each one of us, there's this insatiable desire for control. We want to live the way we want to live without judgment. Thank you. <laughs> right? This is the root and source of every dispute, of every war. This is why marriages come to an end. This is what perpetuates poverty in our world. The source of evil is not just out there, but it's in our own hearts. Because we want to maintain control. So as a father with, uh, with young kids, this is, this is exactly what the terrible twos and threes and beyond are all about, right? I mean, th- the thing is, is that th- this same impulse and desire, which I deal with on a daily, if not hourly basis, is what Matthew is getting at here. 
which is, you know, you look at it and you're like, hey, don't, don't touch that ball or whatever it is. It's something silly, ridiculous, you know. Uh, don't throw that ball. And it's like your kids, they turn and they give you that look, right? So you know they heard you and they're probably thinking not nice things in their head, right? And then they throw the ball, right? And here's the deal. In that moment, it's not about a ball. It is a battle of authority. It's a battle of authority. It doesn't matter what the thing is. It's that I want to do what I want. I want to do what I want. And as soon as we get wills and realize we have wills and wants and desires that our parents don't have for us, it becomes a battle of kingdoms. And there can only be one king. And that's true in our houses too. It is a battle of kingdoms. And maybe you've learned to manage it so you don't, you know, spit in people's faces anymore or throw temper tantrums when you're leaving church anymore. You've learned to manage that, but that desire is still in you. We all still have little Herods sitting on the throne of our hearts. So Keller, Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, where is the true king? That question is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart. Since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our lives. We may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may flee from religion because become atheists and loudly proclaim that there is no God. Either way, we are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. As soon as Jesus invaded our space, it becomes a battle of kingdoms in our hearts. Because if Jesus really is who he says that he is, if he really is the king of kings, then all bets are off. Everything changes at that point. We can try to maintain our authority, but we're all faced with the same choice that Herod faced. We can bow the knee, or we can try to destroy the king. Because there can only be one true king. But if we choose to bow the knee, that means that we lose control, the control that we imagined that we had over our lives. We lose the right to define what is right and wrong for ourselves. We lose absolute authority over our speech, our pocketbooks, our sex life. We are no longer the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. So Herod, he sees the king of kings, but he sees him as a threat. But Herod wasn't the only one who received news. The Magi were out there asking this openly in the streets of Jerusalem. They were asking people, where is the king? Where is the new king? And you would think, right, that they would burst forth with rejoicing and partying in relief. They had been waiting for this moment for the promised Savior to come for thousands of years. He was going to come and deliver them from their oppressors like Herod. 
It had been promised since the very beginning of time. This was the central point of their whole religion. The Savior was going to come. The anticipation, the longing for hope fulfilled. They should burst forth with excitement. And they hear the news, and here's how they respond. Right, so the Magi, they come and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him. They literally hear about the fulfillment of God's promise. The one that they had been waiting for. And there's no rejoicing. There's no uprising. There's no feast. Instead, they're troubled by the news. This is really unexpected. This is like, you know, all all of our Advent time building up to Christmas and no one, zero people show up for Christmas Eve service, right? It's just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. That's what it's all been building up to. But it goes on in Matthew, he zooms in from, from just Jerusalem and the Jews as a whole. He zooms in on the religious leaders. So pick it up in a in verse 4, so Herod, so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So Herod, he grabs these chief priests and these scribes, the religious leaders of the day, and he asks them directly, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they knew the scriptures. They knew the promises of God better than anyone else alive. So when Herod asks, they have no problem, you know, spouting off a memorized verse from Micah, which I don't know about you, but I probably couldn't do that. I mean, these are guys, they knew the scriptures. They knew exactly where he would be born. So here's the thing. They received the news of the Savior, that he had been born. They know exactly where he would be. And not a single one of them went to Bethlehem. Not a single one went to seek him out. Bethlehem was literally five miles from Jerusalem. Five miles but it wasn't even worth the travel for them. They weren't even curious enough to go. They just wanted to get back to life as usual. So they answer with this theological precision, but their hearts and their bodies are unmoved. See, the Jews, they see the promised Savior, but they see him as a liability as a liability. You see, this is probably the most tragic thing in the whole story. I mean, the Jews had lost sight of everything they had been longing for. But the thing is, they had lived under King Herod for a while now, and they knew his problems, but they had peace they could live with. Peace that they had worked hard to get. Peace that kind of minimized the destruction of this tyrant over them. 
And the reality was Jesus was a liability to that peace. Jesus was a liability to them. He could set Herod off. He could destabilize this false sense of peace that they had. Can you guys see just the religious hypocrisy here? They were willing to stay under oppression to maintain this false peace they had with Herod. And really what's crazy is the rest of the passage that they quote. Here's what it says. He, this king, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure, the people of Israel. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And listen to this. And he shall be their peace. So they reject the Savior that came to bring them true peace. They had scriptures memorized that they didn't believe. They really didn't believe. They worshiped God with their lips, but just like Jesus exposed over and over again in his lives, their hearts were far from them. So they hear news of the Savior, and they go back to life as usual. This sort of religious hypocrisy isn't foreign to Oklahoma, right? I mean, we are surrounded by it. We tend to think of religion as this thing that we do, this box that we check, everything's okay. And so we have people who sit in church every single week who confess Jesus with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And it makes sense because it's true. Jesus is a liability. He's not safe. He calls us to do uncomfortable things. He risks our reputation, our livelihoods to follow him. And some of us would rather just be comfortable, maintain the status quo and the false peace that we have than take on the liability of Jesus. But the deal is this, Jesus, he's invaded our space. He has come and he's not primarily after our comfort or our great theology, or our religious practices. He is after our heart. He's after our heart. And he may be a liability, but he is worth it. He is worth it, because he will be our peace. So Herod, he sees the king of kings as a threat. The Jews, they see the promised savior as a liability. But then we see the magi themselves encounter Jesus face to face. So let's pick it up in verse 7. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Which he really meant he wanted to kill him. Um, but anyway, after listening to the king... They went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, 
they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So here's the deal. The Magi at this point, they're probably very confused by everything that's going on, right? I mean, they come as emissaries to seek out this new king that has been born. They go into Jerusalem, and everyone's like, I have no idea what king you're talking about. And then they find out the king, the current king, summons them and says, actually, there is a king born five miles away. Why don't you go find him and let me know if you find him? So they're probably like, what in the world? This is a weird place with weird people. What is going on here? So they go on this journey, this five-mile journey to Bethlehem, and they see this star, and it says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The Greek here is really funny. It's basically like mega big joyful joying, right? It's kind of like what it says. They, they experience this excitement and this joy that both Herod and the Jews should have experienced, but didn't because they were so blinded by their pride and their hypocrisy to see it. So the Magi, they come to this house. The Holy Ones bothered to make the trip. And there they find this boy Jesus who, again, they actually don't show up the night Jesus was born, by the way. Um, Most likely, he's probably one, one and a half at the time they show up. And as they enter the house, they see this poor family, this toddler with his mother, and something changes in them. Something changes. They came to honor this foreign king. They came to entreat favor of a new member of the royal family. But once they see him, They don't just honor him, but they fall down and worship. And when those two words are paired together, fall down and worship, it normally doesn't mean just honor like we saw before. It normally means worship like a God. So here's the deal. The Magi, they see the king of the Jews, but they see him as God in the flesh. God in the flesh. So these pagan foreigners, they saw something in Jer- that everyone in Jerusalem had missed up to this point. That Jesus was not just the king of kings. He was not just the promised savior, but he was God himself in the flesh. He was not just a boy, but he was the creator of the universe. So they come to honor a king and they end up falling down and worshiping the one true God. So J.C. Raleigh puts it like this, these wise men believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him as a little child on Mary's knees and worshiped him as king. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them, And yet, when they saw that child, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. So of all the people in the story, the Magi are the only people that actually receive Jesus as he is. Which is just crazy. This is just crazy. These foreign pagan priests are the only people in the story to receive Jesus. So as we wrap up, I just want to conclude with with one thing and just want you to notice something. God could have orchestrated all of this 
behind closed doors. He could have done all of this, the birth of Jesus, and Herod would have never found out about it. The Jews would have never known about it. The Magi would have never known about it. But God was doing something. God is the one who set all of this story into motion, right? He put the star in the sky knowing it would draw the Magi. It wasn't like he was in heaven going, I really hope that the Magi don't see that star and come. I really hope rumors don't reach Herod and the Jews. I really hope no one knows about this. No, he literally brought the Magi to reveal to all of these people that Jesus had come. Why? Why? Well, first, Jesus, he came to seek and save King Herod's. He came to seek and save King Herod's. We look at Herod and we think, what a monster. He needs to be destroyed. He needs to be put down. But Jesus sees Herod and he has compassion. He sees the desperation in Herod, the paranoia, the depression, the brokenness and loneliness that comes with clinging to power and authority with all your might. And Jesus literally sends the good news of the kingdom of God straight to Herod. He reaches out to this King Herod and he says, I am your king. Receive me. Receive me. And maybe you've lived your life like Herod, deciding for yourselves what's right and wrong, casting off maybe any whiff of religion, holding on to your lives with all your might. Jesus came to seek and save people just like you. And the call for us is to cast down our crowns before Jesus and worship him. But Jesus came not just for him. Jesus came to seek and save religious hypocrites. He knew who the Jews were. He knew their disbelief. He knew their hypocrisy. He knew their hearts were far from him, yet he came to them anyway. He came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. And maybe you're like them. You're using religion to kind of keep God off your back. Maybe this all is just a big game of theology to you rather than a worship from your whole life. Jesus came to seek and save people just like you. And the call is that we would give him our whole lives and our whole heart and worship him. But finally, Jesus came not just for them. He came to seek and save those furthest from him, the most unlikely. The Magi were the least likely to find themselves in a house in Bethlehem, right? They weren't Jews. They worshiped other gods. They helped other people worship other gods. This wasn't their land. This wasn't their king. They were pagan priests. They were thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles away, loyal to other kings, loyal to other gods. They were, at the same time, religious and irreligious, and yet they find themselves bowing down to a toddler and worshiping him as God. And here's the deal. We see the wise men, they're like, man, they really sought after him. But in this story, what we see, 
Jesus sought after them. He drew them. He brought them. He longed for them to come and worship him. So maybe you can't imagine Jesus wanting anything to do with you. Maybe you think you're the last person on this world that Jesus would want. Jesus came to seek and save people just like you. Just like you. So for all of us, the question is this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? So if you would stand with me, Here in a moment, we're going to take this meal. And in this meal, we remember that Jesus sought after us, and Jesus came for us. And he didn't only do that, but he offered us gifts, right? He offers us the bread to remind us of his body that was broken for us. He offers us the cup, his blood, that was shed for us. And so, here in a moment, we're going to take this meal together. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're invited to come and feast on the gifts of Christ to you. And to do so like the Magi, with mega big joyful joying, right? Because Jesus came for us. He saw us, and he's rescued us. If you're not a follower of Jesus— then Jesus is calling you to himself this morning. He's wanting you to meet him, to bow down at his feet and to worship him.